The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Good morning. Uh, Today's scripture reading comes out of Isaiah 4, um, and that'll be page 715 in the uh, ESV Bibles that we have on the back table. Um, If you don't have a Bible, or if you don't have an ESV version, or for whatever reason, if you're in need of uh, the written Word of God, um, on the back table you'll see copies like this. It's a little bit smaller, but um, feel free to take one home. That's a gift from this body of believers to you. So if you're in need at all of Scripture, um, you can grab one temporarily or take one home with you. Uh, Again, we'll be in Isaiah 4, uh, and we'll be reading verses 2 through 6. If you'd all stand for the reading of the Word of God. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This is the word of the Lord. morning, everyone. Please join me in prayer. Our great God, uh, you see all, you know all. Uh, You are the architect of history. You are the designer of our days. And uh, we take comfort in that. We thank you that you know our plight, you know our weaknesses, you are aware of our frame. And you meet us in our needs. We thank you, God, especially today for answering our prayers regarding uh, Bob's open heart surgery. We thank you for uh, bringing him through that. Thank you. And we ask for continued healing there. Lord, there are many people in our congregation who aren't here today because of sickness uh, or various troubles. Lord, Hear our prayers. We look to you to meet all of our needs. And as we engage your word this morning, we ask that it would cut us to the core, that it would remind us of our sin, but also remind us of your deliverance. Show us Jesus Christ, because that is enough for us. Get us excited about being with you forever, Lord. Show us that that is our greatest good and give us joy and hope that's fitting for this Christmas season. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, I'm thankful for uh, Brett's work 
last Sunday to open our Advent series. We're spending Christmas in Isaiah and we're contemplating the wonders of Christmas and the, uh, the life that unfolds to us through Christ's coming. And we're seeing all that through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah who lived 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And you know, studying the prophets, I think it's a, a wondrous opportunity because we get to see the connections that just run across the whole Bible. And so the result is that our faith can grow as we remember that our salvation in Christ was announced by God beforehand. It was, it's woven throughout the ancient Hebrew scriptures. So that builds our faith when we see that. But studying the prophets can also confound us a bit because we're not used to hearing truth packaged in this way. These days we don't have much of an ear for poetry. We don't have much of an eye for detailed artwork. We're a culture that loves sound bites and memes. And, and so in a sense we're ill-equipped to hear what Isaiah is saying. So I want to encourage you throughout this series in December, I want to tell you that you should sort of imagine that a mural is being painted, maybe behind me or maybe on the walls, I don't know. Imagine that a picture is, is being painted as we're walking through these words, like a mural or a fresco. Think about who are the figures in this painting? What are the surrounding circumstances? What, what are they doing? Where are you in that picture? And in all these glimpses from the book of Isaiah, the hope is that you'll have reminders of what difference does it make that Christ has come and what difference does it make that Christ is coming again. So last week's fresco was of a growing mountain, a mountain with, with people going up, people even flowing to it, and then peace and justice emanating out from that peak. And that picture of Christ's reign is meant to give you confidence for today, confidence to walk in the light of the Lord. That was the big application point, walk in the light of the Lord. And maybe you can think about, I mean, this is a season of lights, right? Maybe you can think about that as you're walking through your neighborhood, seeing all the Christmas lights, walking in the light of the Lord. But have you ever seen Christmas lights around a house that's old and dilapidated, maybe with the, the shingles peeling, the paint coming off, uh, maybe like a junky car or some appliance in the yard, overgrown shrubs. And then you've got some holiday decorations just kind of like dumped on top of that. It doesn't really do the trick, does it? I mean, you may be referencing this glorious season of Christmas, but just below the surface, the mess is still there. And maybe they should have just left up their Halloween decorations. Well, now imagine that that old and dilapidated house is actually the church of God. Are we celebrating the glories of Christmas while underneath, just, just below the surface, there's serious problems that are visible to all? Well, immediately after last week's verses in chapter 2, the next almost two chapters paint a very different picture than that glorious mountain. They show the reality of the people of God in Isaiah's day. And the land was full of idolatry and corruption, Judgment and exile were decreed. God's purposes through Israel and, and the Davidic line of kings seemed to be failing. So instead of telling the world, hey, come to the mountain of the Lord, instead, the people were running after the pagans and going to other mountains themselves. Instead of looking to the Lord as their refuge, they were trusting in power and wealth and their own wisdom, and that led them to call wickedness good and to call goodness wickedness. 
And that darkness just remains the tone for those first chapters until we get here to chapter 4, verse 2. Does your Christian experience ever feel like that? Like there's this glorious vision, this, this mountaintop vision of what's supposed to be happening in God's plan, and yet you look around and the church seems so messed up. All around you see corruption, apostasy, the exalting of the godless, profaning of the holy. So instead of contentment, there's greed and grasping. And instead of purity, there's sexual immorality. Instead of sincerity, there's arrogant pretense. Instead of worshiping God as he's meant to be worshipped, as he's revealed himself to be, there's sort of a choose-your-own-adventure Christianity, which strangely fits perfectly with the popular social agendas of our day. And we see the people of God living a life not that says, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, but instead grasping for the acceptance of the world. Was there any hope for the people of God in Isaiah's day? Is there any hope for the corrupted and misguided and divided church of God in our day? How would a renewal of the people of God even come about? So our verses for today bring us back to that glorious picture of chapter 2 that seemed to have been lost. Back in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the prophet showed us God's people gathering in Zion. Well, here at the beginning of, of chapter 4, the emphasis is on how that gathering in Zion will come about. It's an announcement of how people will be able to flow up that mountain of the Lord. What hope is there for the fallen and corrupted people of God? This passage gives us three pictures of how God will restore his people. First, an exalted Christ, the branch, will flourish. This is in verse 2. Secondly, a a transformed people, lives will be purified. We see this in verses 3 and 4. And finally, a protected people, God will provide guidance and covering. We see that in verses 5 and 6. And I hope what you hear today is that the flourishing of God's people depends entirely on the fruitfulness of Christ. It's not your burden. When the church is messed up, or when your own Christian life is messed up, even the best intended uh, schemes or disciplines or, or human campaigns is powerless to bring change. It must be a work of God, and it it is promised to be a work of God in Christ. Renewal is from the Lord. So verse 2 begins, interestingly, with these words, in that day, in that day. Since chapter 2, the phrase, in that day, has been used five times, and it's like this ominous refrain that Isaiah is using, because it always introduces an oracle of judgment, something you know, that God is condemning in the people. And in that day, it's going to be dealt with. And so now, as, as the audience would read, in that day for the sixth time, you know, there might be a dread coming to their minds or, or their stomachs would have a pit. They'd be thinking like, oh no, what, what's he going to say next? But again, so all expectation, what follows is actually a message of glorious hope. Because in that day means the appointed day of the Lord. It's the time for God to act, and as great and terrible as God's day of action is for those who have made themselves his enemies, the ultimate purpose of that day is blessing for those who cling to him, no matter how filthy they may be. 
judgment and blessing. Somehow, both of these purposes would come about at the same time. But how? We read, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. What in the world? Uh, A beautiful branch. What's going on here? Well, this is a metaphor. It's, it's a, f- a fruitful metaphor. And it's, this isn't the only place where it happens. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, twice in Jeremiah, it says that in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And the book of Zechariah also twice refers to this branch figure from the house of David who will bring restoration, who will serve as both priest and king, And throughout Isaiah, I mean, this is the only time in Isaiah when branch is used as a noun, but the same word, its verbal form, is is used. It's sort of a play on words going on throughout the rest of Isaiah and speaks of the growth of salvation that God will cause to spring up. So even ancient Jewish scholars saw in this, this term, the branch, certainly an allusion to someone from the royal line of David, like a, a branch from the family tree, But even beyond that, many Jewish commenters saw a reference to the coming Messiah. And we know, of course, it is our Lord Jesus. He's the only one in whom God's purposes of judgment and salvation ultimately come about. Now, whether you call it the branch or shoot or sprout, all those translations are probably inadequate. It's, you know, we can think of something like the Lord's new growing thing. It speaks of vitality, of a promise of life. And Jesus himself latches onto this imagery. Do you remember in John chapter 15, he describes himself as the one vine, the growth from which all flourishing must pass to those who are connected to him. Now, chapter three of Isaiah had spoken of, of how God's people had been chasing fleeting beauty and glory, both for themselves and, and in the things around them. And so this declaration about the beauty And the glory of the branch, that's meant to reorient them and and reorient us. The branch of the Lord is beautiful and glorious. And if we want renewal, we want flourishing, this is where we must start. We must start with seeing Jesus Christ as more beautiful, more glorious than ourselves or any of the creature comforts that we chase. How are you doing in that department? You can tell how glorious you think something is based on how much you think about it. Is Jesus your fondest daydream? Let's use Advent season to cultivate an enjoyment of his presence, a longing for his return. How are you going to do that this Christmas? You probably won't unless you slow down and open your Bible. Maybe listen to some sacred holiday music, really ponder the lyrics. And parents, are you helping your kids to see the branch as beautiful and glorious this season? Because if you're not doing that, then you're just reinforcing that beauty and glory are found mostly in the trappings of materialism and entertainment because that's what they're inundated with this season. So we have to slow down and we have to look up. And when in that day the fruitful branch would come, Isaiah foresaw fruitfulness. It says, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So all those who survive the judgment of God's people, these survivors, elsewhere called a remnant, they would be left with an endowment or legacy of a land full of fruit. 
And this imagery gets after God's abundant provision, the lasting contentment that's found in him. And the New Testament latches on to this thought that God wants to provide fruit in the land. Right? It's no accident that the apostle speaks of God-honoring qualities in our lives as spiritual fruit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. When you see those qualities emerging in your life as a gift from God, realize that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, a fruitful land. And another fruit that God has indicated he wants to accomplish in our midst is multiplication, the exponential transformation of people through our living openly for him. Both of these types of fruit are fruit of the land that flows from Jesus. He is the fruitful plant of God's new garden. And the fruitful branch says to us in John 15 that by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit is in the plans of God. This sort of fruitfulness will be our pride and our honor as we enjoy God's work among us. There's a sense in which at times we will share in his glory It reminds me of of Acts chapter 5 where we're told that the Christians were meeting daily in the temple and it says that none of the rest dared to join them but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of men and women. But when the people of God are failing morally or they're languishing in self-centered disgrace how do we change and, and see that growth in our midst? How do we realize fruitfulness in the land? We don't focus on cleaning ourselves up, marketing ourselves, polishing our own beauty. No, we look again to the branch. We simply abide in him. Ultimately, any true fruit that we would see in our midst is merely his fruitfulness becoming manifest through us. Well, next we see that an exalted Christ, the the fruitful branch, leads to a transformed people. Verse 3 says, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Zion, or Jerusalem, throughout Isaiah, represents the community of God's people. And in Christ, that includes you and me. And it describes God's people as recorded for life in Jerusalem. Because in ancient cities, they had books that actually recorded who are the citizens, who belongs here, who has attained that status. So this is just saying that all true citizens of God's city will be called holy. Are you one of those who is left in Zion today? Have you survived as a part of God's remnant when so many have walked away from the faith? You know, we live in a time and a place where apostasy and deconversion are extremely popular. That's the the popular thing to do. But we don't have to fret about those waves of people who, who treasure the acceptance of people more than the acceptance of God. As the Apostle John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So this passage in Isaiah speaks of the opposite. Not those who went out, but those who stayed in. Those who are recorded for life in Jerusalem. And if you're walking with Christ today, it's no accident. It's because your citizenship has been recorded by the divine pen. 
And it's said that everyone who is left in Zion will be called holy. And this is good news because chapters 1 through 3 had called the people of God an unfaithful harlot. How do you go from harlot to holy? Why can you be called holy? If, if you have any self-awareness, you know what a mystery this is. Is it as simple as God just saying, going to call him holy, going to call her holy? Yeah, sort of, but that declaration is grounded in the work of Jesus on the cross. Verse 4 says, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Now when it references daughters of Jerusalem, daughters here is symbolic for all who belong to Jerusalem. So cities are described as females and those who live out the, the city's character that identity, those are referred to as daughters of the city. When it talks about filth, a more literal translation might be vomit. In other words, uncleanness from within. And then blood stains. that refers to the types of violence that we do to one another. And clearly Jerusalem in Isaiah's day was, sounds like a dark place, but there are many also who claim the name of Christ today who are covered in vomit and bloodstains, right? Bloodstains like bitter anger, cyber slander, domestic violence, abortion, adulteries, the exploitation of workers, vomit like substance abuse, pornography, jealousy, dehumanizing entitlement, self-righteousness, apathy toward the things of God. I could go on. There's, there's no cheap way to move past these offenses, right? We don't just need a Band-Aid. We don't just need a cavity removed. Our corruption runs deep, and we can't dwell in God's city with dirty lives. A washing, a purging is necessary. The cleansing must be done to us. This is the work of God himself. This holiness is not something we can achieve, but rather a new reality we are given. You hear that? This is Christianity 101. Holiness doesn't come from self-improvement. It comes as a gift of cleansing. The Holy Spirit is the one who will cleanse the people of God. All human efforts to be holy without the Spirit of God are doomed to failure. But how does the Holy Spirit cleanse us? How, how can he? What, what right does he have to cleanse us even? Why would he do that? Well, in Leviticus and Hebrews, the Bible is clear that purging of sin can only happen through sacrificial bloodshed. And Zechariah says that through the branch, the iniquity of the land will be removed in a single day. So we know that this happened on the sacrificial cross of Christ. In the past, we've used what happened on that day. We've, we've talked about positional sanctification. Do you remember me using that term in a past sermon? So your position was made holy at the cross of Christ. And that purification was applied to you the hour you first believed. So when we think about the solution for a, a corrupted church, we can start here. Well, what about you know, just the, the position of holiness? Is that there? Because we have to start at the cross of Christ. And maybe the church is corrupted because it's full of fake believers, people who bypassed the cross, people who called themselves servants of God without saving faith, without repentance, without that positional 
cleansing. And so if you have a church of people who are uncleansed by the cross, well, of course, it's going to look more like the world than it will look like the city of God. So that's certainly part of the problem, that there are unbelievers in every church. And yet, even for the true believers in the church, those who have been positionally sanctified, although our God calls us holy and sees us that way in Christ, there's still a progressive sanctification that needs to happen. So Zechariah goes on to say that a fountain will be opened for the cleansing of the city's sin and uncleanness, an ongoing source of purification. So is the church in need of purification today? We have to go back to the fountain. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to apply the finished work of Christ. Uh, the old hymn says, would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you be free from your passion and pride? Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. Would you do service for Jesus your King? Would you live daily his praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. So these verses celebrate the fact that the good news that saves us from the guilt of sin is also the same good news that still now is more and more saving us from the power of sin in our lives. We don't start with the gospel and then somehow graduate to a place where now we can cleanse ourselves without it. We keep returning to the gospel. We keep hoping in that, in Christ in our place. We keep returning to the cross of Christ as happy beggars, proclaiming each day that he has bought our purity for us because we were helpless to work it out on our own. And as we trust like that each new day, then the result is an increasing freedom from the grip of sin in our lives. And that's the only way to be free from the power of corruption and violence. Ultimately, no programs or self-help books will bring about the transformation I'm not saying that the pursuit of holiness doesn't require work. It does. But it's spirit-led, spirit-driven through and through. And it gravitates around the gospel. Seeing Jesus in our place. Seeing that he bought our holiness on the cross. So look to Jesus. Cry out to him. Ask him to wash you and cleanse you today. And make you not only called holy, but actually holy in word and action. And as we worship him, we will become like him in character. So the truth we're getting after here is that the entire Christian life is one of repentance and faith. Each new day we have to actively choose to turn from our sin and to trust the one who is the source of all holiness. And if you don't think you have an ongoing problem with sin, or if you're not willing to talk to someone about it, well, First John says that you're a liar and that the truth is not in you. Jesus cares about holiness. We must experience this purifying fire from the Lord if we want to be one of those who remain in Zion. Now, how does he perform his ongoing washing and purification of his people? One mechanism we've already mentioned is confession and prayer. And this confession is not only before God, but also a transparent life before other people. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So is there something in your life that displeases God this morning that you haven't shared with anyone? 
If so, I'd encourage you to do that, even this morning. You can pull me aside. You can talk to someone from your life group. This is the sort of honesty and, and vulnerability that's normal Christianity. It's just normal Christianity. Deep and honest relationships in the church are not an option. They're a necessary avenue of grace through which we abide in the fruitful branch and receive health. Now, if you have the attitude that your sin is your business and you're too embarrassed for anyone to know your failures, I just want to tell you that's not going to go well for you. You'll become proud and hard-hearted and you'll fall headlong into even more filth. Also, if you don't want to confess your sin because you feel like the other person has bigger problems that they're not confessing to, you're missing the point. Repentance is something ultimately that we do in the sight of God. It's not like one-for-one hostage negotiations. Like, okay, you release this many, then I'll, I'll do the same. Oh, actually, if you're, I want to tell you, if you're in the position today where you have a spouse or um, a coworker or, or parent, um, friend where and hostilities have built up what a blessed thing to be the first one to fully and and frankly confess your sin and ask that person for forgiveness you know that god will reward that you know that he will not only by forgiving you by but using it as a stepping stone in your life for further holiness and joy okay even if the other person never confesses to their part never opens their heart toward you, I mean, that'll hurt, but you will feel strangely free. Another essential way in which Jesus purifies us is through the Holy Scriptures. Ephesians 5 says that Christ loves his bride, the church, by cleansing her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So the point isn't that we make ourselves holy through Bible reading, but rather that because this book is where the fruitful branch, Jesus, is revealed, therefore, this book is his tool for conforming us to be like him. So if you're not in the Bible regularly, like, let's just be real, you're not serious about holiness. Our Lord wants to wash you with his word. But what's the point of this holiness? We don't want to lose sight of that. What's the point? We want to be holy so that we can dwell in his holy presence. This is is the great irony of redemptive history that Adam and Eve, they ate of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in some way they wanted to be like God. But as they did that, they actually became less like God than they had been before and they were alienated from his presence. And so restoring that union with God, that's the point of the story in which all of us find ourselves. That's why verse five goes on to celebrate here that then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. The Lord will create just as he brought life out of nothing in the beginning, just as he's promised to make all things new in the end, even so he has created a foretaste of that life together with him that we can enjoy right now in our wilderness wanderings. It says he'll create a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. 
now, if you're looking out the window for strange weather patterns, I just want to give you a word about prophecy here. If you were to ask me the question, should we take the Bible literally? Of course, I would say absolutely. But you have to take it literally according to its genre. What do I mean by that? Well, the literal meaning of some forms of writing incorporates poetry and symbolism. We do this all the time in our modern writing, right? If um, Jim Morrison sings, Come on, baby, light my fire, he's sending a, a very exact message, but he's not talking to an infant, and he's not encouraging an act of arson. We know what he means, right? So, so take the Bible literally, but recognize the symbolism that the original recipients of these writings would have recognized themselves. Don't be... Don't be just silly in how you pursue a literal interpretation of the Bible. Now, verse 5, what it's doing in this symbolism is it's invoking the memory of God's guidance of the wilderness generation because at that time, at the time of Moses, he literally did go before them in the form of a cloud and fiery smoke. This is from Exodus 13. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So in doing that then, God was teaching his newly liberated covenant people something about himself. They needed that concrete object lesson. He was showing them that when they belong to him, he will always protect them. He will always guide them. He will always illuminate and shield and stand between them and their enemies. So now that imagery is used to describe what the, the column of cloud and fire were always pointing to. And it's cool, I think, that the same fire of God, which Isaiah is, is using to describe judgment and, and the burning of sin, that, that fire is now their protection and their hope. So let's just pause and ask this question. Do you know a God who only burns away sin but doesn't abide as your protection and your hope? Like he's always taking, he's always asking more. Is that your God? Or do you know a God who always protects and guides but never confronts you? He just comforts and, and not much else. Well, the thing is the fire of God does both. You can't truly have one without the other. This God is holy and he loves you enough not only to protect you and guide you but to lead you into the joy of that same holiness. And the fact that both of those aspects of his presence with us are, are promised here in this passage, it's, it's exciting stuff. Now in Exodus, the Lord camped among his people with that, that pillar of cloud. He was among his people, but he wasn't directly accessible to them. The cloud went before them, or the cloud sort of enveloped the tabernacle where only the priests could go. But verse 5 here says that the cloud is over the whole site of Mount Zion, over the assemblies. So the implication is now there's open access to this shelter for all the people of God. And this is exactly the same thing that Ezekiel promised in chapter 39. He says, I will not hide my face from them anymore. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. That's the reality that's being described. And we live in this reality that our God is accessible. 
Because Jesus took on frail humanity as God with us, now his spirit indwells his people. And it's no accident that the sign given at Pentecost was tongues of fire above their heads. You can think of a spirit of judgment and burning, a spirit of fiery cloud guidance and protection. It's all there, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. The branch of the Lord means that the glory of the Lord goes with us and dwells among us and leads us and illuminates all that is dark. And verse 6 adds, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge from the storm and rain. Now this might feel like a bit of an anti-climax. Like, okay, we've got this great fiery cloud of God's presence and then his glory is going to protect us from heat and rain. Well, what he's doing here is he's proving a point by stating the full extent of the protection that's available. So where this is going is that God isn't going to let his people be troubled in any way. Isaiah doesn't need to, to list all of the evil forces that we're protected from. Instead, he just, he just mentions the impact of the presence by stating the very normal things that we're protected from. So not even these lesser disturbances like heat and storms will destroy the peace of God's people. One Old Testament scholar put it this way, that the very ordinariness of the needs enhances the idea of free access. So you don't have to wait for a dire need to benefit from this guidance and protection. But remember, these gifts of the Lord's presence are only for the people who are pardoned and cleansed. There's a, a flow of logic to this whole passage as a progression. First, the fruitful branch appears as beautiful and glorious. And we know that this was the appearance and the suffering and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And then flowing out of that fruitfulness is the purification of his people. And then accompanying their purification, their being made holy, comes the presence of their holy God among them. So in this picture in Isaiah 4, it's, it's a great little fresco, a great little visual summary of the truths of Romans 8.32, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The gift of the branch of the Lord changes everything. And so this short passage kind of forms a bookend with last week's passage from chapter 2. And in between those bookends was a catalog that we skipped of, of all the disgusting infidelity of God's people. And these two bookends are God's answer to that. Because just like the people of ancient Judah, we can be so caught up in the patterns of our society around us that we forget that dwelling with God in his holiness is our greatest good. And when we see the, the state of the church around us, it can easily lead us to despair. Will we ever learn our lessons? Will we really have to keep covering the same ground generation after generation. Well, this passage gives us hope because it shows that it's God's faithfulness and not Israel's faithfulness that will have the last word. You know, in the 20th century, there were a number of church traditions that were really big into holding revival meetings. Now, I'm not saying that these didn't have any good results, but I haven't heard of any of them really resulting in lasting revival. Because revival is God's work. Renewal for the people of God, it can't be produced through engineered movements, group momentum, 
only through us as individuals trusting in the branch, beholding him as beautiful and glorious. Now, if a bunch of people do that at the same time, are beholding the, the beautiful and glorious branch at the same time, then revivals have sprung up, usually at unsuspecting prayer meetings. But it's always because of God's initiative, because he's decided that it's time for another installment of In That Day. Do you ever get worried about where the church in America is headed? Or maybe by God's grace, you're, you're even aware that you're part of the problem the filth, the stain of blood on yourself this morning. This passage tells us we can be certain that God won't give up on his people. There may be fires of judgment coming on the church of God, but they'll only serve to make his people more what God always wanted them to be. Redemption and renewal could never come from our own fruitfulness, but the branch of the Lord Christ, the Messiah, is God's gift who produces everything we need. So look to the fruitful branch. He is purifying a people. He is keeping a people. So may your name be written among those who rejoice in his coming. Let's pray. Our holy God, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you that you have purposes at work that are beyond what we see. And you're not phased by the, the filth in the church, the apostasy that's, that's happening in places. It's not out of control. You are sovereign God who is building your church. So we thank you for drawing us that we can flow up Mount Zion. We thank you for purifying us through the work of the branch. We thank you for leading and guiding and protecting us. On this Christmas season, we ask that you would help us to rest in that, to believe in that, and to live boldly because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.